Well, I want to take a minute to welcome all of you from Calvary Quakertown. It's good to have you join us this morning. We're in a series that we're calling Therefore Everyone, and we're making our way through the letter to the Romans that's found in the New Testament. And this morning, we're going to come to maybe one of the best-known sections in the whole letter. But before we get there, we've got a little bit of a tough sledding to do. Well, I didn't lose any of my sermon this past week, but the snow on Wednesday put a little wrinkle into things. So when I left for lunch on Wednesday, the snow was falling, but it hadn't accumulated too much. And so I left, office door open, computer up and running. While I'm at lunch, I get a text from Eric Scardino, our very capable and wise HR guy and financial guy. And he says, Charles, by the way, we're closing the office, so don't come back. So I wrote back and said, well, my office is open, computers run. Great, I'll lock your office for you. I wrote back and said, okay, finish my sermon while you're in there. He texted me back. Sermon's done. Love Jesus, love others, have a great Sunday, close in prayer. <laughs> Not only will the sermon be that short, but you can thank Eric for an extra long sermon this morning. In fact, I'm going to attempt to do something that I don't think I've ever done before. I'm going to attempt to cover 92 verses. Now, here's how it's going to go. I'm going to cover 90 of them in pretty quick overview fashion, and then we're going to focus in on two toward the end. Well, if we're going to do that, we better get started. Well, we're going to look at the tension or the stress and sacrifice or stress and submission that begins in chapter nine and runs through the beginning of Romans chapter 12. But right out of the chute, there's a big dilemma. There's a big dilemma. Now, let me kind of tease out the dilemma for you, all right? Here's the dilemma in a nutshell. If you were here last week, and I recognize most of you were here last week, you know that we ended that awesome chapter, Romans eight, by looking at assurance, in fact, lots of commentators say if there's one word that could be written over the entire chapter of Romans 8, it would be the word assurance. You can rest secure. You're assured in God's love. You're assured in God's faithfulness. God will never let you go. Rest. Relax. Well, that presents a problem. In fact, uh, let, let me show you the problem. If you look at verse 30 of chapter 8, here's what we read. If you, you can use your phone, iPad, wherever you want to do it. But here's uh, verse 30. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That's assurance, right? Hey, if God called you, if you're in, you're never getting out. You're in, God called you in, you're stuck. You're not getting out. You can rest secure. You don't have to live on the treadmill of thinking you're in, thinking you're out. It's not up to you, it's up to God. Once he calls you, you're in. Assurance rules. Look at how Romans 8 ends. Um, Wes talked about this last week. Verse 38. I am convinced, so on the theme of insurance, right? That neither death nor life, angels or demons, present or future, nor any powers, any height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Assurance. Well, that's a problem. Now, why is that a problem? Well, here's why it's a problem. It may not be a problem for us, but it was a big problem for lots of people in Paul's day. And here's why it was a big problem. The Gentiles were beginning to be the vast majority in almost all of the churches. 
In fact, that is especially true, was especially true in the church of Rome. Well, if once you're in, you're in, the question is, well, what about all the Jews? What about Israel? Didn't God call them and didn't God give them lots and lots of promises? Well, if they can't trust God, then maybe we can't trust God either. After all, they had all those great promises from the Old Testament. They were in, but now they're out and the churches are being populated by Gentiles. Maybe God's going to forget about us and something will happen for us in the future. Well, Paul then has to answer that question. And he answers the question in a, a, a number of interesting ways. First of all, if you remember the overview of the book, you'll notice that chapters 9 through 11 are almost like a parenthesis. So here, here it goes. 1 through 8, all about gospel, right? We worked in detail through those eight chapters. It's all about gospel. Here's the problem. Here's the solution. Here are the results. All of that goodness wrapped up in gospel. If we were to pick up in chapter 12, and we're going to get there in a few minutes, if we were to pick up with chapter 12, you will discover that chapter 12 begins with a therefore and picks up exactly where chapter 8 ended. Chapter 8 ends with assurance, and then immediately Paul says, now, on the basis of all of those promises, on the basis of the assurance that God will never leave you or forsake you, here's how you should live. Well, what in the world are we going to do with 9 through 11? It's kind of like a parenthesis. And some commentators say, maybe these chapters got mistakenly put here. What's the problem? I don't think it's a mistake at all. Paul has to answer that pressing question. How can we consider God faithful? How can we live with lots of assurance if the Jews were in, but now they're out? Maybe that'll happen to us too. Well, Paul answers the question, and I'm not going to answer it in detail. We're just going to fly over the chapters. But let me, let me tell you how Paul answers the question in a nutshell. The first thing he says is, natural descent was never sufficient. Just because you had a certain daddy or mommy or granddaddy or grandmommy, that doesn't count. So natural descent doesn't matter. It's not who you were born to, it's what you're believing. So it's not natural descent, it's what you're believing. And then Paul says, well, by the way, Lest you think God is being unfaithful and forgot about the Jews, in case you forgot, I'm Jewish, Paul says. And there are lots of Jews in the church. All Israel was never all Israel. In fact, if you look back through the Old Testament, it's not natural descent. It's those who believe that make the difference. So that's what Paul's saying, and that's how the chapters unfold. But that then presents us with the biggest tension that the church has probably experienced through the centuries. And here's the tension that Paul uses to answer the question. On the one side of the tension is, God is absolutely sovereign. He's all loving, he's all powerful, he's in control. He not only knows what's gonna happen, he's in control of what happens. On the flip side, human beings are responsible. You're responsible for what you believe, you're responsible for what you do, you're responsible for your actions and your attitudes, and so God's in control and you're responsible. How do they fit together? I have no idea. Let me show you how he says it though. So here's the divine sovereignty stuff, right? Nothing escapes what Paul says. God says to Moses, oh Moses, by the way, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And by the way, Moses, I won't check with you to see if that's okay. 
The Bible emphatically says God's not running a democracy here. A democracy may be the best way to have a human government. I'll tell you what, a a democracy would be a miserable failure when it comes to the universe. Would you really like to vote against a sovereign, all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God? No, I'd want somebody like that running things. And And so Paul is reminding us of what the Bible says from beginning to end. God's in control, and that's a good thing. God's loving and God's powerful and he's in control of everything. And God says, I'm going to have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion and I'm not going to check with you to see if that's okay with you if I do it or not. Remember, I'm God, you're not. Now, I know as an American, you may not like that, but that's kind of the reality of what the Bible said. You don't have to like it, but that's truth. Look at the metaphor that Paul then gives. Who are, oh no, you got to go back one. We, we didn't finish that yet. We're going, there we go. <laughs> Look at what Paul, it's kind of, na- read chapter nine. It, it, it's, it's a good smack in the face for you on a day like this. Paul writes, who are you? A human being to talk back to God. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it? Why did you make, make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? That metaphor comes right from the Old Testament. And it fits with that divine sovereignty theme, right? And so Paul says, hey guys, remember the picture from the Old Testament? We're the clay, God is the potter, and he's allowed to make us into whatever he wants. In fact, Paul even mentions here, remember Pharaoh in the Old Testament? And God, Pharaoh hardens his heart. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. I mean, that, I know that's hard for Americans to take because we want to control things and be in charge. But the Bible says, time out. God not only knows everything, God controls everything. God is sovereign. Oh, yeah, but then you come to chapter 10 and you realize that human beings are completely responsible for what they do. So we read things like this. Now you can change the slide. There we go. So Paul writes, well, what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, that is. The message concerning faith that we proclaim. Now, notice what Paul says. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll experience reconciliation with God, forgiveness of your sins, all of that. But you have to believe You have to follow. You've got to put your stake and you rest your future into the hands of God. You've got to do that. And if you don't believe, if you don't exercise faith, if you don't follow him, the consequences of not following or following are in your hands. Isn't that what he says? It is with your heart that you believe and you're justified. It's with your mouth that you profess and your faith by by which you're saved. We're responsible. The Bible clearly says, We live today with the results of decisions we made yesterday, for better or worse, right? And I could pass the microphone and we'd have fun listening to those stories. For better or worse and probably a combination of them. You made decisions, you believe certain things, you've done certain things, you've said certain things, and you live with the consequence of that. And the Bible would say, yeah, and you need to own that because you're responsible and you make decisions and you live with the results of those decisions. And we will live for eternity with the consequences of what we believe and the decisions we've made. That's human responsibility. Now, how does divine sovereignty 
and human responsibility fit together? I don't have a clue. I don't know. And so when we're reading or thinking through like Romans 9 where God's in control, what do we say? God's sovereign. He's in control. He controls everything. And we're reading Romans 10. We say, you know what? And we're responsible. And we live with the consequences of what we believe and the decisions we make. How do they fit together? I don't know. I do know this, though. That's part of the price we pay for having an infinite God. I don't know how they fit together. But the Bible clearly says God knows all things. God is all loving. God cares. And God is in control. And the Bible also says that you're responsible for what you believe and you're responsible for the actions you do and the words you say and you and I will live with the consequences of our behavior and our beliefs forever. Beliefs, actions, words have consequences and you're responsible to believe and act and live in a certain way and if you do or you don't, you'll live with the results of that. Both of those things are true. I don't know how they fit together in a neat package. Someday you can ask God how they fit. But from beginning to end, the Bible emphasizes both of those things. So maybe understanding is not like a circle that has one center. Maybe this is like an ellipse that has two centers. And this divine sovereignty, human responsibility centers, right? And maybe they form the ellipse with two centers. That seems to be what the Bible's saying from beginning to end. Now you need to understand Christians have gotten angry about these two things. Some fall on the divine sovereignty side and they point their fingers and say nasty things about those that are more on the human responsibility side and those on the responsibility side point their finger at those nasty crotchety people on the divine sovereignty side. And this is no joke. Christians have not spoken to each other. Churches have divided, denominations have been formed, and the world looks at what we're doing over something like this and says, I'm not sure if I want to be part of something like that or not. We have denominations and groups and Christians that are on one side or the other. The Bible says both. How do they fit? I don't know the details of that. But I do know this. What's the context in which Paul brings up the tension? Here's kind of a weird, what's the context? Paul begins chapter nine, and at the beginning of every chapter, nine, 10, and 11, he says the same thing, basically something like this. I know you guys are really concerned because the Gentile population of the church is increasing, and lots of Jews, those that were followers of God, lots of those people, they're not part of the church, they're not following God, and you look at them and think somehow they've been cut off, and then Paul says, beginning of every chapter, I love, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I love and care for them so much, if there was a way that they could be in and I would be out, I would be willing to give up all the privileges that I have as a Christian if they could become Christians. Interestingly, when I talk to people on the divine sovereignty or the human responsibility side, I never hear anybody talk like that. The context behind the tension is mission. Paul's saying, wait a minute, guys. We should be thankful for the Gentiles that have come in, and we need to reach out to more, and we should be thankful for the Jews that are in, and we need to reach out for The context is mission. Remember, Paul writes the letter when he's on a missionary journey, and Paul is longing to share the gospel and live out the gospel. 
So when we talk about when people show up on campus or when they interact with people from Calvary Church, we want them to hear a relevant explanation of the gospel and experience a lived out application. That's what Paul's doing throughout the book of Acts and Romans. That's what he's doing. And Paul says, I can't control the results. I can't make people believe, but I can live the way Jesus calls me to live. I can speak the words of the gospel in ways that people understand. And somehow that person and God in concert together will bring some to an understanding of who he is and to life and forgiveness and grace. The context is mission. Now, here's the part I really like. So we got three chapters of parenthesis, right? If this is really boring to you, I'm sorry. But people fight about this, right? At least we're not fighting about it. So we have divine sovereignty, human responsibility, in this tension that we're not going to be able to solve. The context is mission. But I love how Paul ends it at the end of Romans 11. We would like Paul to settle the argument, right? We would like Paul to say, now those lousy divine sovereignty guys who think God controls everything, they need to give human beings some rights in the deal. Or maybe, they, or maybe the other human responsibility people say, you know, those hard-nosed guys that it's all God's doing and none of our doing, they need to see what we've done as a country here in America. They need to give people a chance. But that's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't settle the argument. Here's what Paul does. He gives a doxology. We're not going to be able to solve this tension. Here's how Paul ends the tension. Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So rather than become frustrated and kind of raise his fist at God and say, I can't believe you've done this. You've said things that I can't understand. You're just trying to prove you're smarter than me. Paul says, oh my goodness, this tension is an opportunity and a call to worship and praise because it's part of the price we pay for having an infinite God. We need to be at, be at the same place. I can't solve that tension. I don't think you're, if Christians are a whole lot smarter than us, haven't been able to solve it, we're not gonna solve it either. Live with the tension, recognize the context is mission, and allow the result to be worship and praise, and you'll be in good company. Well, let's come to the, so we just covered 90, or yeah, basically 90 verses. All right, so now we're gonna pick up two verses. So if you have your Bibles, or if you're going to jump ahead, look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. Now, when, as soon as I start reading, you're going to go, oh, yeah, I know that verse. I memorized it. Somebody told me that verse. Here we go. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Notice how that picks up right at the end of chapter 8. So we can go right from 8 on assurance to now our response to that. Uh, so let me start with a question. How many of you like to be in control? Raise your hands. I know some of you better get that hand up. I got my hand up. I know you. I'm waiting. It doesn't matter where. It doesn't matter what. We want to be in control. If it's at home 
We want to be in control. And one sure sign of that for me is I should be in charge of the remote. <laughs> and here's what I've discovered. If I keep it in my hand, I'm in charge. Nobody really asked for it. If I put it on the table, I've given it up. I keep it in my hand. I put it next to me on the chair. I hide it. Where's the room? I have no idea. I don't know. Um, but I want to be in control of that. Or maybe you're, you know, one of those anal retentive kind of people. The kids never make their bed the way it should be made. The floor isn't swept and cleaned the way you think it should be made. At home, we want to be in control. We want things done the way we think they should be done in the order we want to be done. How about at work? You want to be in control there, right? You want your boss to act a certain way because you know what his job better than he knows. And you want your employees or your team members to function the way you want them to function. And you want the metrics and the results at the end of the week, at the end of the month, at the end of the quarter, at the end of the year to be the way you want them to be. We want to be in control. Let me ask you, if you're going on a trip with somebody, do you want to drive or do you like sitting in the passenger seat? I want to drive. Because when I drive, I can stop when I want. I don't have to ask to go to the bathroom. I don't have to stop. Can we stop at Starbucks? If I'm driving, I pull in, right? Uh, I want to, when I'm driving, I'm on a trip, I want to be in control. When I'm in relationship with people, we want to be in control. Can I let you in on a little secret? Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, if you're in control, you're not living out your responsibility before God. If you're living so that you have to be in control, you're living in denial of the gospel. What? Some of you sitting there thinking, why did I come to church today? What? Well, notice, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. We don't like that word either. But since it's there and since Paul's thinking about it, Paul takes us to an Old Testament picture. This is temple terminology. It's in the New Testament where soon is going to be no temple. And there's no temple for us. But Paul takes us back to the temple. You may think, well, why is he doing that? Well, let me explain it to you this way. How did worship work in the Old Testament? Well, it worked like this. How did you show your faithful following of God? How did you continue what God started? Well, you continued what God started by recognizing who God is, by recognizing who you are, and then you would live life as God wanted you to live it. And that meant periodically you had to give a sacrifice. Now, here's, here's what we often trip over. When I say sacrifice and thinking of animals being killed at the town, I know that freaks some of you out. We got some PETA people here, right? That freaks you out. Um, but here, don't think of your pets. Think of your checkbook and bank account. That's what they were thinking, right? They didn't have a flock of sheep that had lambs as pets. That was their bank account. That was their economic um, well-being. That was what they owned. And so every time they were called to give a sacrifice, it was values clarification time. And here was the question God would ask, who do you love more? That's the question. Who do you love more? Who do you love more? And uh, God said, if you love me more, You'll uh, wander around your bank account and you will give me 
the first fruit of your bank account, or in animal terminology, you will give me the prized, unblemished part of the flock. Because it's, it's exam day, right? When you're going to give a sacrifice, a burnt offering, this isn't a sin offering, Jesus is that. This is the burnt offering where you give it all. You say, Lord, I want to follow you because of all you've done for me. That, that's the picture here. And so you went out in your flock. This is values clarification. This is final exam. But if those Israelites were like me, here's what I'd be saying. Well, that lamb over there is worth a lot of money at the market. I know that. Look at that sucker. Now, this one over here that's kind of half dead and fuzzy, and that, that one here is an economic liability. He's still eating, but I couldn't give him away. I couldn't pay people to take him and bury him, right? I know. I got a plan. I'll give God this one. I'll get rid of the financial liability. That one, I'm taking that one to market this week, right? I'm going to keep what's most valuable, and I'm going to give God my economic liability. You don't think that happened? Read Malachi chapter 1. That's exactly what's happening. And God says, huh, that's funny. I've emptied heaven of my greatest treasure for you, and you're giving to me your financial liability so you can take the rest of your bank account and leverage it to your own benefit. Huh. So who do you love more? That's the question. Oh, there was another deal going on. Why were sacrifices so important? That kind of grosses us out. Well, here's what's going on in the sacrifice story. When you go to temple to offer a sacrifice, you have to admit you really screwed up. In fact, you didn't screw up a little bit. You screwed up a lot of bit. In fact, you go, and it was a capital offense. So you go, and you take an unblemished animal. That's, the animal didn't commit that sin. You did but you take it to the temple and somehow your sin or whatever transferred to the animal, it gets offered and you go home with the words forgiven over top of your head. The innocent can die for the guilty. That's the picture. And here's what God wanted. God wanted that principle burned, hammered into everybody's heads. The innocent can die for the guilty. Bang, the innocent can die for the bang. Think about that. Thousands and thousands of times throughout history, Animals, innocent animals dying for the guilty and words of absolution and forgiveness being spoken over and over and over and over again. And then one day, not the picture, but the reality shows up. And John the Baptist has the privilege of pointing to Jesus and saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of that drama Thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions to get to that point. The Lamb of God. It's a picture. That's what's going on. Old Testament sacrifice. The innocent can die for the guilty. It's a test. Every time you have to give a sacrifice, it's a test. What do you love more? Are you loving God more? Are you loving yourself? Is it your bank account or is it me? What are you loving? Can you trust me to provide for you? Or are you going to take matters in your own hands and leverage your finances and your bank account to take care of yourself? How are you going to do that? That was all Old Testament sacrifice. We come to the New Testament, we get a new way to worship. It's not sacrifice like that. Now it's surrender. Now it's surrender. You know what it says? It doesn't say offer a lamb. It doesn't say offer your bank account. It says offer yourself. 
When it says bodies, your bodies, that means all of you. That means your insides, your outsides, everything. Where your body goes, the rest of you goes. Climb up on the altar. Problem is we climb up, we keep climbing off. We climb up, we climb off, right? That, that's the dilemma. But notice in these verses, Paul gives us the motivation. What's the motivation? It's in the word, therefore. On the basis of everything he said in this letter so far, your problem, God's solution. The results that have come from it. Or he says, in view of God's mercy, actually plural, in view of God, God's mercies surrounding the gospel, in light of those things, the most sensical, reasonable, logical thing you can do is to now give yourself to a God that gave himself for you. I mean, it's kind of like an IQ test, right? That's why it says, this is reasonable worship. The, the old King James gets it right there. It's reasonable, it's rational, it's logical. This makes perfect sense in light of who God is and in light of what God's done. But notice in verse two, that we live in a world of influence, don't we? I talked about that during the announcement for Unveiled. We live in a world of influence. And we live in a culture that tells us where meaning is found and where purpose is found. Our culture sends messages about money and job title and resume and sex and lust and all of, our culture gives us messages and answers to all those questions. And Paul says, who are you being influenced by? The decisions you make come from those you allow to influence you. So change the influence and you'll change the output. Change the input. So do you only hear the messages of culture or do you hear the messages of the gospel? Therefore, in light of all that God's done for you, how do, we, how do we get that inside? We think about it. We contemplate it. We read it. We come together and worship. We do it in small groups. We badger each other with it. We are being um, bombarded with messages from culture. How are you letting the mercies of God and the therefore stuff get into you that will allow you to be different? So how should we respond? Well, I was thinking about that because Valentine's Day wasn't that long ago. I'll, I'll use men as the, now, this is not about me. If the story resembles me, it's not me. Suppose, you're, uh, suppose your, your wife, your fiance, your girlfriend just loves flowers. And she's been remind, badgering, reminding you that she would like flowers for Valentine's Day. So you go online. And you realize that florists are ripoffs, right? I mean, they know everybody's got to buy flowers, but flowers are expensive in February, right? And so you're driving home. I'm not spending all the money on that. I'm crazy. You pull into your driveway, and you notice on the side of your driveway, the ornamental grasses from summer have turned a pretty shade of tan. And you say, I know. I'll pull some ornamental grasses and wrap them with a ribbon and give them to my wife, girlfriend, so you get out of the car and you pick up a nice big clump of mud on the bottom with them too, right? You hold them out the window, you don't wanna get your car muddy, hold out the windows, you drive the rest of the driveway and you go in and you tie it up and your wife or girlfriend, whatever comes in, you say, it's for you, honey, because I love you. How frosty is that evening going to be, right? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the parallel, right? God, who's given everything for us, us in the gospel, gives us these promises that he's going to be faithful to keep through the end. And what do we do? Well, you know, as I look around, I'm going to take what's best. I'm going to take the lion's share, and I'll kind of find some ornamental grasses out of season over here, and I'll give that to God. 
How smart is that? Now, I know a whole bunch of you are sitting there, and I sat this week often at my desk and thought, you know what, this is scary stuff, right? I mean, it's scary to climb up on that altar. I mean, it's scary to say, I know what God's done for me, but you know what, I, I, I'm afraid. I, I mean, if I live the way God calls me to live, people make fun of me. If I live the way and I'm as generous as God calls me to be, I may run out of money. If I live as God calls me to live, people may say nasty things about me. I may lose my job. I may lose my frat. I may... Hmm. You ever notice that if you're going to experience the adventure, it often begins with letting go? You ever notice that? I'm not sure if you've ever gone on a zip line. That's pretty scary stuff, isn't it? Especially if it's like over a forest. Remember that? You sit in a little seat, you put in that seat, and that, that really hurts you, that strap, by the way, right? Sit in that little thing, and a guy hooks you up to the wire, and you look down over the trees, and that wire sagging way down, and you think, I'm not this crazy, right? And the guy says, oh, but you want to have the adventure. You want the fun. At the other line, you'll want to do it again and again and again. It's awesome. How many people don't make it? Today? Oh, no, they all make it. They all make it. Are you sure? Yeah. Well, what do you have, what do you have to do to experience the adventure? You have to let go and let the line rip. But that's what the zip line was designed to do, and that's what the little pulleys and that harness that hurts, that's what all those stuff they're designed to do. That's kind of what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. If you're going to experience the adventure, you have to let go and live the way you were designed to live. We weren't designed to live according to all the voices of our culture we were designed to live according to the themes of the gospel. And that means you let go and leave all those voices of culture behind and you zip down that line, experiencing the thrill, having your heart in your throat often. But at the end of it, you say, I would never have done it differently. So the question this morning is, are you, you willing to do that, to let go? God's done his part. He's done all the therefore stuff. He's exhibited all that mercy in the gospel. Now it's your turn. Are you going to live in love and service and generosity and grace and mission? That's what it means to be on the altar. Are you thinking the right stuff and having intakes? Are you serving as he calls you to, loving as, as you're designed to, giving, living in mission and praise? Are you doing those things? That's just a small sampling. Oh yeah, by the way, what does all this mean? You know, you're, I don't know what it means to climb on you. I don't know what it means to give my life as a sacrifice. How about this? You continue what Jesus started. You look at what Jesus did. If you get confused, you continue what he started. That's how we live that way. I know it's scary, but you can trust God. He hasn't lost one yet. That zip line's pretty secure. You still have to let go. You still have to say, Lord, I'm going to give you what you're asking for. I'm going to think what you want. I'll serve people as you call me to. I'll love them. I'll give and be generous. I'll live in mission. I'll sing praises and live a life of praise to you. I'm going to seek to continue what Jesus started. That's what I'm going to do. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. And in the rest of the chapter, he talks about how to do that in relationship with ourselves, with the church, and with other people. We'll look at that over the next few weeks. We join me as we pray. Father, we give you thanks for this uh, amazing section of Scripture 
We admit that the tension is kind of confusing, and we certainly aren't going to be able to figure out the divine sovereignty, human responsibility dynamic and how it works out in great detail. But we do know because of your love and because of your power that we can trust you. And we also know that our decisions and what we believe have consequences today, tomorrow, and forever. So Lord, help us to decide wisely, to believe correctly, to let go and to enjoy the adventure between here and you catching us at the end. We pray in the name of Jesus.